It's hard to imagine that a man whose father was killed in a hate attack and a former white supremacist would meet and become friends. But that's what happened in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. The shooter was a white power skinhead from the gang that I had helped to start. So in, in so many ways, he was exactly who I used to be. You know, I was scared to meet him. You know, my mom, um, family was like, well, you know, if somebody believes in this kind of ideology, they can never change. I'm Patrice O'Neill, founder of Not In Our Town. In this podcast, we'll learn how Arna Michaelis and Party Kalika came together in the aftermath of a deadly hate crime that targeted members of the Sikh community while they gathered for Sunday prayers. We'll also talk about their new book, The Gift of Our Wounds. Hardeep and Arno are featured in the Not In Our Town documentary, Waking Oak Creek. It's a story about how the community responded to this horrific hate crime. It begins on August 5th, 2012, at the Sick Temple of Wisconsin, where we hear the voices of people trapped inside. Oak Creek 911, emergency. Oh, we were having a fighting here in Oak We need 911, quick. Dad is shooting. Okay, did anybody get hit? Hello? Six members of the Sikh community were killed that day, including Pardeep's father, Satwan Kalika, and a police officer, Brian Murphy, was shot 15 times as he confronted the killer in the parking lot of the temple. After the attack, in his grief, Pardeep reached out to Arna Michaelis, a former white supremacist who left the movement in the 1990s and formed a group called Life After Hate. My connection to Arno uh, was really about finding out the whys, why things like this happen and why, why would somebody be steeped in this ideology to the point that they would go after those that they did not know and could kill six people that they'd never met before. I, I was really grateful to see Pardeep's email and grateful most of all for the opportunity to serve, to, to be part of his healing process in any way that I could. Pardeep and Arno have been working together for years through a nonprofit they founded called Serve to Unite. It focuses on peace building for local youth. Their new book, Gift of Our Wounds, chronicles their journey. Going back to their first meeting after the attack at the temple, I asked Pardeep why he decided to reach out to a man who spent years of his life steeped in hate and violence. The shooter himself was dead. He killed himself uh, after he killed six um, people, and uh, there was no way to bring him back from the grave. Um, I, I knew that, and, and I knew that sometimes that taking of life uh, creates this hole in this void. And it definitely did with me of not having somebody to say, you know what, I want you to be accountable for this. Um, and whether it be fair or not fair, one of one of the reasons that I reached out to Arno was because I wanted somebody to be accountable for it. And Arno did not um, disappoint. When I went, the first time I met him, um, you know, I, I let him know how I was feeling and how we felt as a community. Obviously, he understood. And, and not only did he stop at understanding, but he raised his hand and said, I'm responsible. I am responsible for, for what happened to your father. And not only will I be responsible, but, but, but I will take action going forward to make sure that this never happens again. So Arno, talk about getting the message then from Pardeep that he wanted to meet. 
I was looking for ways to uh, offer myself and everything I am to, to help people who had been affected by that. And that's why when I heard from Party, I was really excited. I was very grateful. I felt a huge amount of responsibility for what happened. The, the shooter was a white power skinhead from the gang that I had helped to start. So in, in so many ways, he was exactly who I used to be. And I, I was very painfully aware that I had helped create the environment that this man came from. And I, I was worried about when I met Pardeep, I was going to go to pieces and just be this miserable, sobbing mess. And I, I didn't know that I, I could emotionally handle it. But uh, upon meeting him, he's just such an awesome, easygoing guy. Uh, it, we, we had this feeling like we had known each other all our lives, even though we, we had just met. In the book, Pardeep and Arno delve into their backgrounds. Pardeep's family moved from India when he was six. They settled in Oak Creek, a suburb of Milwaukee. His dad helped build the Sikh temple, and the family owned a gas station. Right after 9-11 in 2001, there were attacks against Sikhs and Muslims across the country. A Sikh gas station owner was killed in a hate attack in Mesa, Arizona. I asked Pardeep about this. It must have been an incredibly vulnerable time for their family. Post 9-11 was a stressful time for um, a lot of people. And, and this is not just to say for Sikhs and Muslims, but this, is, this was a stressful time for our entire country. It had been uh, a long time since we've seen a tragedy like this affect uh, Americans on American soil committed by terrorists from a foreign uh, country. And, uh, you know, I quickly knew that um, <clears throat> for us, for us as a family, I would have to represent our family um, the following day at our small mom and pop shop that we owned on the south side of Milwaukee. Um, so I made up my mind that, that that evening that I would go to the gas station the next day and stay there the entire day and probably stay there the entire week. Really just explaining and helping people understand and cope with uh with 9-11 and what happened with it and and this was not to dismiss and let people know how Sikhs were different from Muslims it was really just to just to let people know and uh help them understand what we stand for and what what immigrants stand for and what Muslims stand for and for the most part um we all stand for for opportunity and compassion, love, uh, and, 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 and really being able to navigate those times as a community helped us in the long run. We kind of rallied around strength and um, really uh, fought against that fear narrative. Around this time that you decided to go into law enforcement, and what, what was it that drove you to that decision and that calling? Yeah, um, service. Um, you know, in Sikhism and in other faiths, um, one of the basic tenets is is service, and to to be of ser to be of service was always my calling. Um, since I was a child, I you know I remember talking to my mom and dad about this and saying that you know I I don't I, yes I love like running businesses and doing this and doing that, but I really want to be of service. Well, I think so much a part of of being in the world and offering service is that you have to deal with all the problems of the world. Police officers do, mm -hmm. and, and so do teachers, which is where you ended up. 
I was I was policing in one of the worst neighborhoods in Milwaukee. Um, it, is, it is a, a you know a, a neighborhood that is known strictly by zip code, and uh, it was really when I when I went into policing, I was really naive. Um, to say the least. I, I just, you know, I think uh, I just thought that really I can keep good people safe by locking up bad folks and quickly realized that it wasn't that simple. And um, I wanted to get, uh, get get into the prevention side of it. You know, I wanted to I wanted to address the problem before it really got to be too big and, and police officers would have to come and lock them up. Um, and so I went into education, but it was really purposeful that I wanted to teach in the same neighborhood that I was policing in. So I started working with at-risk high school youth. The biggest thing that I learned was just build uh, honest connections. And I say teaching is uh, all about three things, rapport, rapport, rapport. And uh, yes, it matters what the subject matter that you're teaching and all, and all these other things, um, but what really matters is that you have a true, genuine relationship. And that relationship helps to heal um, a lot of the wounds that people feel because they feel understood, they feel heard, um, and they feel connected too. I thought I would be doing that for the rest of my life and uh, until August 5th happened. So many people wonder and are really suspicious of you and people who come out of, of hate groups. Um, and they wonder how you escape hate and if it's even possible. Um, can you talk about both the pivotal life change and at the same time the everyday occurrences that helped change you and pull you away from hate? Yeah, the most frequently asked question I get is, how did you change? Like, what was the catalyst? How did it happen? The simple one-word answer is exhaustion. What was most exhausting, though, is when people who I claimed to hate treated me with kindness. And I was very fortunate that that happened many times during my seven-year span in hate groups, times when people like a Jewish boss, a lesbian supervisor, black and Latino coworkers refused to capitulate to my hostility and instead decided that they were going to dictate the terms of engagement. They were going to say, I'm making the rules, not you. When I was a white power skinhead, everything I did was meant to provoke hostility and hatred from people. And if that hatred was directed at me, that was fine. That was all the better. I, I wanted people to hate me. I wanted people to free, fear me. So when people really defied me was when they treated me with kindness. If people reflected my aggression and my hostility, they were literally putty in my hands. They were doing exactly what I wanted them to do. And I think this is a, a very crucial point to get across because more and more often nowadays, I, I'm asked, why is it that, that, that oppressed people are the ones that have to show compassion or forgiveness? Why do they have to bear the burden of kindness and compassion and and very sadly that's a subjective call to call those things burdens in the first place second of all it's been my experience working with party working with people of color who have been through the most horrific traumas you can imagine at the hands of of alt-right white supremacists 
that kindness, compassion, and forgiveness are not only essential parts of the healing process, without which you're never going to heal. They are weapons against hatred. They, they are the way that you change hearts and minds. And, and you convince people of the wrongness of their actions. And, and I think most importantly, how you demonstrate for people that there's a better way to live your life. People have to experience that greatness, and the best way to do that is through kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. The two of you know each other now, but party right after the attack, your family didn't want you to reach out to Arno. There must have been a lot of tension around that. Yeah, initially, it was very scary. It's, it's very scary to, you know, when you're in that kind of uh, situation, you start to look at the world as a, as a big, scary place. Um, when people are traumatized, they, they start to look at it and say, you know what, I, I don't know if I can do, uh, if I can protect myself against this big, scary world. And you really start to think that the world is happening to you. Um, and uh, it took me meeting Arnold to understand that, you know, no, the world is happening for us, and we just have to find that. So I'm urging people to read the book to see how each of you came to the place you are now, but there are pivotal moments that I want to explore for a moment. Mm -hmm. Arno, your alienation grew. You became increasingly violent. When the Hammerskins, one of the most destructive skinhead groups in the country, wrote to recruit you, you were proud but not surprised. Blanking, right, you said, I won't use the word, but our crew was the scourge of the North. How did you get to a place where you dehumanized so many people? It, it goes back to early childhood, and, and it really just boils down to suffering. You can't commit racial violence without something seriously being wrong with you. <clears throat> so as a child... I started lashing out at other people because I was suffering uh, due to my father's drinking and the, the pressure it put on my mom. And hurt people hurt people. And in my case, my lashing out became a habit, like an addiction. The, the adrenaline rush of teachers screaming at me or principals or parents or whatever. And also the, this feeling of, of power I got when people feared me. Uh, that's why in, in the book, when... The, the first Hammerskin chapter reached out to us. We were like, yeah, you're, you, you, know, you better have us in your group. Like we'd, we weren't subservient to anybody. We, we, everywhere we went, we'd made it known that we were there and we were taking command, and if anybody didn't like it, we'd beat them to a bloody mess. And, and the, just saying that is a rush. Like We have that kind of power. Nobody can stand in our way. Um, that it, it's an addictive thing. And once you get in that mode where that's how you think and that's how you act, people start to fear you accordingly. And now you got to keep acting like that and keep escalating it because um, there, there's no end game to that. It's, it's just a, a spiral of, of escalating um, aggression and hostility. And you have to be the most aggressive and hostile one in the mix. And so it's, it's a very... Uh, it's a vicious cycle that uh, really sucks to be caught in. But when you're caught in it, you don't understand what kind of mess you're in. All you know is that like, you're, you're, you trade in fear, you trade in hostility, and you need to generate as much of it as you can. Tell us 
about the significance of the title, the gift of our wombs. Where does that come from? What does it mean to, to each of you? In my case, uh, my wounds are primarily self-inflicted and, and wounds that I inflicted on other people as well. And I've learned so much from survivors like Pardeep that uh, when you're going through trauma, you, you can not only make it through that trauma, but you can reach a point where you're glad that you went through it. Obviously, party will never be glad for losing his father, and, and we can't look back and be glad that we've lost loved ones, but we can realize that our response to that trauma has, has made the world a better place. And I think that's what the, the gift of our wounds is all about to me. I, th I think what I want it to represent is also is, is hope to say that, listen, tomorrow the sun, no matter how you feel right now, the sun will come out tomorrow. And sometimes you might want the world to stop, but it doesn't. And you almost be like, why does the world keep moving when I think that everything should sit still because of what I've been through? You look up at the sun and you ask it and say, why do you continue to shine even when people are miserable? Why do you continue to shine even when I am miserable? And the sun will look back at you with the most compassionate, compassionate look and let you know the truth. You are always worth it. No matter what you've been through, you are always worth shining on. And you'll realize the gifts of your wounds. So you both spoke about fear and the, the fear you had to overcome to develop this friendship and, and the work that you do together now, but talk about how um, overcoming fear is a, is a key factor in both your stories um, and the work we do to overcome hate, bigotry, and violence. When, even when I, the first time I met Arnold, I, I, you know, I was scared to meet him. I said, you know, parents, my, my mom, um, family was like, well, you know, if somebody believes in this kind of ideology, they can never change. And I think a lot of us have that, um, have that feeling sometimes if that somebody's, if somebody was a white supremacist, then they'll always be a white supremacist. Or, you know, if somebody was a certain type of way, that they'll never change. And um, when we speak about fear, yeah, definitely that the fear of all that was there. But um, for me, there was much more of a fear of not responding in the way that we knew that we should respond. And um, the fear of not doing anything, the fear of just allowing this to be another uh, mass shooting in America that didn't represent anything to anybody. Um, besides the, the, the few families that were directly affected. That fear uh, was much more pressing than the fear of, uh, of meeting uh, you know, a former white supremacist or the fear of not doing anything. And, and I hope that like, what we can understand, like, what we can get through all this is that, that, the, that we sit in a time where if we have that, that constant fear, then we can be in better times going forward. 
talk about overcoming fear, Arno. What kind of fear did you have to overcome uh, in this work, and why is fear a key factor in overcoming hate, bigotry, and violence? Uh, looking back to my days as an active hate group member and as a recruiter for hate groups, and, and looking at the way that uh, hate groups operate nowadays, um, looking at the way that uh, a lot of policy coming from the White House is driven, it's all rooted in fear. It's, it's cultivating fear of the other, and without that fear, you cannot have a hate group. Uh, you, you need the fear to motivate people. And I'll, I'll, I'll use this person's child as, as a source of fear to, to manipulate their emotions to where I want them to be, which is hating immigrants, hating black people. That, that exact same process is happening now where uh, children are being taken from their families and fear of the, the very violence who drives these families to our border is being used to justify what's being done to them. So I, I understand the mechanics of fear and how it's used to drive hate movements and hate policy. And therefore, on a daily basis, I'm mindful to be fearless uh, as much as I can, which of course doesn't mean that you're never afraid of anything. It means that you don't let fear make your decisions for you. You don't let fear lead you by the nose. And a lot of the work we do is meant to instill the faith in humanity that is the best antidote to that fear. If I, if I have a firm faith that our basic human experience is a good thing and that people are basically good, then that goes a long way to dispel this fear that, that other people are, are trying to trade in, actually. This is going out to people who work with Not In Our Town around the country and people who are actively engaged in, in um, trying to stop hate in their community and build inclusion. For those who are not engaged in that way, why should people become involved? Why, why do they need to, be, to become involved in um, standing up in their communities now? We need to be able to drive this and dictate this and then say, okay, this is the future that we want to see and this is what we want to, want to make happen. Um, know that it's, it's, it's a long haul. Um, I was talking to somebody from the March of Our Lives event yesterday and uh, kind of said he was kind of frustrated about things and I told him I said dude it's a long game it's a long game to stay in this it's not just about this next weekend that's coming up it's a long game and we have to stay in it thinking about this in the context of a, of a father the, the world around us is the world where my daughter exists and I want that world to be as gentle and loving as as I feel for my daughter I, I want it to be a safe nurturing joyful place for her and that can't happen if there's hate. It just can't. So the, the, re, the motivation for anybody who's not involved in this work to get involved is, is for the people you love in your life. And if there's someone who tragically doesn't have anyone that they love or loves them, we need to let them know that, that we love them and that they're worthy of being loved. And that's, that's what it boils down to. It's, it's about the people we care about and, and making the world a, a nice place for them. Many thanks to Pardeep Kalika and Arna Michaelis for their work to stop hate. 
Their book is an inspiring reflection on what's possible when we open ourselves to change, love, and forgiveness. The Gift of Our Wounds was written with Robin Gabby Fisher. It's published by St. Martin's Press, and it's available on Amazon or through your fine local bookstore upon request. To learn more about how you can make a difference in your community and to watch the documentary Waking Oak Creek, go to niot.org, N-I-O-T.org. I'm Patrice O'Neill. Thanks for listening.